Welcome to Stories from the Center of the Universe, the podcast about the human experience. Guy Crittenden, welcome to the Center of the Universe. Thank you. Uh, I guess we should mention that you connected to this podcast through one uh, James Robert Dull. I did. How do you and uh, uh, Rob know each other? Rob and I are cousins in law. Mm. <laughs> He's like a cousin to my wife, and we've known each other since he was knee high. So that's how I know Rob, and have known him for many, many years. Well, Rob's uh, just turned fifty-five. So if you knew him when he was knee high, it's five decades. Sounds like plus. You're fifty-five. Yep. Wow. <laughs> that make you feel I old. You were more like forty-five. <laughs> you were. Yeah. So, uh, guy, where'd you grow up? I grew up in Gloucester County uh, in the in the sixties and seventies, and uh, Gloucester at the time was very rural. And um, I grew up right on the Ware River. And my dad was a dentist. My mom uh, was a teacher, and uh, we had a really beautiful home right on the water with three acres of land and my grandfather grew up there he was born in 1904 and knew that river like the back of his hand and he taught me everything I knew about hunting and fishing from the time I could walk I was mm-hmm. going hunting and fishing with him and he uh, he basically raised me in the ways of the river and the prince of tides I called him mm. he was he was a cool guy and really Really well known in in Gloucester uh, folklore, kind of. He he ran a country store in Wareneck and um, grew up down there on Wareneck. It was a he was the oldest of a family of nine children, mm. and my grandmother was the oldest of a family of eight. So I had I had fifteen great aunts and uncles wow. in Gloucester County. So. Talking about knowing everybody. Yeah, I was going to say, you couldn't get away with anything. You couldn't get away with anybody, with anything. I mean, they, uh, you know, they, if if it was in the rumor mill in Gloucester County, it got back to <laughs> either some, my parents or grandparents. So, <laughs> yeah, pretty, was, pretty quickly, it sounds yeah, like. It was hard to hide. So, uh, hunting and fishing in Gloucester, because Gloucester was not as popular back then as I imagine it is for the weekenders sort of thing uh, and I imagine there's a lot more uh, retail action that's happening in Gloucester than when you were growing up when you say fishing were you finding little creeks to go fishing on or were you out in the bay or were you doing all of it we were doing everything uh, and, and my grandfather would I, I tell the story of how my grandfather used to Lee he lived up in town but we lived on the water and he was my maternal grandfather, so he was my mom's dad. And he's the one that grew up on the Ware River, so he knew every little fishing hole. And, you know, they they didn't have uh, the fish finders back then or to know where the, you know, to know where the holes were or where the fish settled. They, you know, they just counted on experience. And he, he was able to line up places to fish by lining up buoys and land landmarks and you know channel markers and get on a spot where we would load the boat with gray trout and speckled trout from one spot in one morning 
we would, you know, and then back then there were no limits like there are now. Right. So you you could keep as many fish as you could catch, and we used to catch them and, uh, you know, fill a cooler with them. I mean, these were these were gray trout that were six to eight pounds, mm. and their 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 tails were as big as my hand. And you're catching them in creeks. And we're catching them in the river and yeah. in on on the Ware River, yeah, yeah. in spots. And uh, I mean, yeah, we would we would catch so many fish in one morning. And uh, I just remember as a little kid pulling in great big fish. And I've never caught gray trout, you know, in the last 25 years like that, like we used to catch. And I don't know what that says about the bay, but they're you know the fisheries on the bay have changed a lot yeah. in the last. 50 years and uh you know but but it 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 changes in that you know the the fishery for the for the redfish didn't used to exist now it does in the bay Mm. part of that is the warming trends and things that are going on with migrations but the rockfish used to be everywhere i remember we used to just go out in front of my house and troll right in front of my house and catch five to six pound rockfish that doesn't happen up there anymore but um you can still find you know pretty big speckled trout you can i've seen some gray trout lately we we get on the redfish i'm a big fly fisherman now so Mm. i fly fish saltwater a lot for for specks for gray trout for stripers uh for redfish and for cobia I associate fly fishing with like a Colorado river, a freshwater sort of thing. Yeah. But you're doing saltwater off, yeah. off a boat, off the shoreline. Off a boat usually. Yep. Um, and I have, I have buddies that really are good. In fact, I have a couple of buddies that are commercial guides. They, you know, they guide professionally and we just something interesting that's happened in the last five years one of my friends is one of the only guys on the lower bay fly fishing for cobia. I've never now, heard of that. I know. Well, it's it's not something in a normal fishery that you would see, but my friend is such a such an intense fly fisherman, ties his own flies, has an entire room, you know, the size of my living room that's just devoted to fly tying. So he has learned how to tie flies that cobia will bite, you know. Kobe will eat and we go out and he's 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 got a 35 foot boston whaler outrage and he put he he retrofitted a little fly fishing pulpit at the front mm-hmm. a little cage with a padded bar around it and we go pounding around that bay looking for cobia on the surface and throw flies to them and they eat and you've caught a cobia i've caught more than a couple dozen Kobe on fly in the last two years. I mean, regular rod and reel, it's hard to catch Kobe. Regular rod and reel, it's a challenge. But but fly is ten times the challenge. And I think that's why he likes it so much. Yeah. I, I've started to really enjoy it, too, because it is such a, it's such a skill, you know. Whereas, I don't know, the, the fly fishing – for in on saltwater is a real skill and, and it's matching skill with technical so you you know you have you've got to get the right fly in the right spot with enough sinking line to drop it down four feet get in front of that cobia and 
and get them to eat. And it's, it's really exciting, exhilarating when they do. You have to know your stuff and you have to be super accurate in terms of placement and timing. Yep, yep. They call it the five and five rule. The five, five, five yards in front, five yards past. And you drag it in front of them if they're going left to right, throw it five yards past them, five yards in front, and you drag it right in front of them and, and they'll eat it. And cobia's good eating, right? Cobia's delicious. It's one of my favorite fish on bad eat. And you, you eat every Kobe you catch? Just about? I, I eat it and share it. You know, it's, it's you know, you, usually you're only keeping a 36 to 45 inch fish. So you can't keep them smaller than 36. So, um, you know, on, on the bay, if you catch a 36 inch Kobe, you're fighting that thing on a fly rod for a while. And, and you're only allowed one per person, uh, and two per boat, I think, is, mm. is the limit on. But a big, you know, 40-inch cobia feeds a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a lot of meat. So, I'm, we, yeah, we're filleting them up, cutting them into, into filet steaks and taking them home and, and giving them away to people. How many days a year do you fish now? Oh, gosh. Um, Roughly. Well, up in Virginia, probably, I don't know, 30 days. Hmm total yeah it's pretty good yeah for the cobia maybe only like eight or ten but my but my buddy's guiding people every other day as long as the weather's good you know, and, and so he's going out into the bay he's going out in the bay from june 1st to the end of august going for cobia and he loves it and he loves it and then when the cobia turn off he's gone he's he's in shore and he's gotten and he strictly fly fly fishing so he's known as kind of a, one of the five or ten saltwater fly fishing guides. And his name's Wayne McMasters, by the way. He's he, good. He's, he's a good friend. He actually, he and I played football together. We, okay. we played on the same defense together for three years. So in college or in high school? In college, okay. Wayne and Mary. All right. Nice. He's from Delaware. Lives lived in uh, lived in Newport News and okay. played football with me. He was right. a good buddy. He's got an entire living room dedicated to uh, talking oh, yeah. flies. Oh yeah, it's amazing. So uh, besides COVID, hundreds of them sitting around, yeah, I can't, and, I can't even picture he, it. And I don't know how he tests them all, but he, he does. He ends up, you know, getting them in the water, and it's amazing. I did some film work for him, so we, we were creating a couple films about that fishery, about the Kobe, like a documentary kind of thing. Documentary, mm-hmm. okay. So. Yeah, that's I'm, cool. Mm-hmm. I have some uh, questions about video. Actually, maybe you could hook me up okay, with some understanding sure, yeah. of video. Uh, but your your video is action mm-hmm. oriented in sports. Yeah, is that, it sports or sportsmen oriented, like hunting and fishing, or is I it, call it sporting classics. Kind okay, of. What, what's it's included in sporting? Sporting is all types of hunting and fishing. Okay. Uh, so hunting deer, I imagine you've been deer hunting a million times. Well, I'm not a big deer hunter. Okay. I'm actually, I'm more of a feathers guy. If it, okay. If it flies, I'm hunting it. Like but, pheasant, duck? Yeah, mostly mostly waterfowl. Here in Virginia, it's duck, goose, turkey, dove, uh, occasional quails. But it's, you know, it's the quail hunting is more preserved hunting. 
So, but for wild game, it's duck and goose are my favorite, and then wild turkey hunting. What's the best eating out of all that? Uh, probably a nice little green wing teal or something. Okay. Something small and and uh, and tasty, not not a, much of a saltwater, but a freshwater duck. Okay. Turkey, you smoke. You can smoke a turkey too. Ooh, really smoked good. turkey's fantastic. Yeah. Smoked so, chicken's good. Yeah. Smoking anything. Smoking. <laughs> yeah. Just about anything. All right. So when you were growing up, you're when you weren't with your grandfather, what were you? And you weren't hunting or fishing. What were you doing? I was playing sports. So I in, mean, the, in hunter, the fall, did, how many options? How many different sports were available to you in the fall? Uh, well, I. I played football from the time I was, you know, in probably fifth grade when they let the recreational league uh, started in fifth grade. And it was kind of funny. You, you'd put on these uniforms and they'd be really, you know, pads that were too big for you, helmets that were didn't have any padding weren't, in them. Weren't really protecting They anything. weren't protecting anything. But you were expected to go out there and, and hit and – you know, even in fifth and sixth grade, it was it was a rite of passage. It was, yeah. But you did soccer wasn't available back in the day, right? I'm guessing. I, I don't even remember whether soccer. I think soccer was. I mean, one where I when you say up. in the day though, it, well, you, you the, grew up in the sixties and seventies. Yeah, soccer was available, but it wasn't a predominant sport. You know, it was it was kind of a side side sport if you did it. Um. So the big three: football, basketball, baseball. You grew up playing I all three. Played all three. Yeah. What, what was your favorite? Basketball. Why? It was just it was just a great game. I mean, it just. I think, I think one thing I loved about it, it was it was, and I always have loved about basketball is it's continuous action. It's it's a high action sport. It's it's high scoring. It's. You know, pick yourself up if you made a mistake on defense or you missed a shot. You had you had ten seconds to get retribution. You know, yeah, yeah. So you could make up for it right away, and I love that about that sport. Whereas in football, you make a big mistake as a defensive back, and you get yeah. burned. You're, you may be on the bench the rest seven, of the game. You're seven points down and hard to you know come back. Whereas basketball was just constant action, and I loved it. Yeah, and basketball also, uh, I think, requires more athletically out of it does. the player. You, you've got to jump high. You've, you've got to be quick, well, fast. Yeah, and it, it involves off where, you know, you can go 10 plays as a wide receiver and not see the ball ever, you know, for a whole half. And they do it in the pros. Yeah, it happens but, in the pros all the time. But, yeah. but in basketball, you're one of five, and you're always out there, and you're always in the game. And you're in, integral to the whole thing, whether on the defensive side or offense. That's what I love about basketball. And I actually coached basketball for 20 years after I. But I made my I made my hay playing football because that's kind of where my skill set lied for for college. And so, what made you good at football? Because you were good I, enough to play at William and Mary. Yeah, I. Um, you know, they just. When they, when college recruiters come to you and say, you know, we're really interested in looking at you for, you know, a scholarship or whatever, you you really aren't 
prepared for that. You're, you're like, okay, these days coaches come to you when you're ninth grade and they or see even earlier. athletic talent at the club level or whatever and they say, you know, we're really interested and we want to follow up. And they keep a lot of communication for years. Didn't happen back in the day like we talk about. Back then – we were recruited my, – my junior year was my breakout year. And so college coaches had no idea who I was until my junior year when I had like nine interceptions and as a defensive back and had more almost 1,000 yards receiving as a receiver. And, you know, all of a sudden I was on their radar. And so, you know, came, you know, the, the summer before my senior year and I'd get – you know, 20 letters in the mail in one mm-hmm. week and say, hey, we saw your stats. We saw your, you know, what you're doing there. We, we're really interested in talking to you. And got letters from big, you know, big-name colleges. And, and then they start to whittle away, you know, like, okay, let's see what, you know, what our, what our recruiting list looks like and then start to form our team. But, you know, I, I, I was recruited by a lot of Virginia schools, UVA, Virginia Tech, JMU, Richmond, William and Mary, ODU. And I just uh, – the reason I settled on William and Mary was because of the coaching staff. Jimmy Laycox – Was he the coach Jimmy Laycox's first year was my first year. He took over for Jim Root in 1980. And uh, 1980 was my first fall. So they followed up on the recruiting. And, you know, I just love the staff there. It made it – you know, it was a great – great place to get a really good education and um i decided on william and mary for for those reasons well you're uh tall and so the fact that you played wide receiver is not shocking but playing db at your height is a little surprising yeah i played free safety in high school okay and uh and wide out and and some tight end but um yeah the the range you know I was pretty fast, and so the range on, you know, a six-two guy running a pattern, it was was, you know, attractive to college coaches. You could cover more distance with you your feet, and, and your catch radius was bigger. Yeah, and I wasn't afraid to hit. <laughs> that was the most I, fun part of playing. Well, I was recruited as a DB because of my aggressive nature. What I tell everybody about free safety, because I also played free safety, not in college, but in high school, is there's one dude with a ball on offense and then 10 dudes in theory trying to block. The one they tended not to block was the free safety because exactly. he was furthest away from the That's why ball. they called him free. Yeah. <laughs> That's a great point. And it, it, was, uh, it was, as you say, one of those positions that doesn't get blocked. It's hard to block a free safety because yeah. they're usually at full speed in five steps. Yep. And so – the problem is you just have to read whether it's run pass and then you definitely don't want to read that you wrong. fly to the ball and that's all i did and i led the team in tackles because i would just i was free and i could i, I was fast i could cover edge to edge and you know people didn't have a, a lot of uh running game like they do these days like the run pass option wasn't was part of it yeah it was run or it was pass it wasn't RPOs back then. Was there there was basic play action though, like a fake handoff? Yeah, there was play action. Yeah, but it was those three. It was run, pass, yeah. or fake the yeah. run and pass it. 
my yeah and so my roommate um and one of my best friends david murphy was the the uh first metro player of the year in 1980 mm. or 79 was his senior year and uh, he made a living throwing the ball at collegiate school and uh, was had all the records at collegiate until Russell Wilson came along. (laughs) (laughs) Which meant they stood for a while. They stood for 25 years. Yeah. yeah. And uh, he broke season records and he, he was an amazing player back then, but he lived, he threw the ball 45 times a game at at the high school level. That's unheard of. That's unheard of. Unless you have a great, a great passer right. and and some good receivers. Right. Let's face it. You need to throw to people that can catch. So, you know, he he lived by the pass and even had some had some wheels and he could get downfield if the play broke. But um, that didn't happen much. When I, the teams that I played against threw the ball ten times a game, you know, and ran the ball forty times a game. So I had a hard time getting interceptions. <laughs> well, as you say, nine interceptions, and they're they're probably threw the ball a hundred times all yeah. season. That's that's saying something. And then right. a thousand yards. Well, no, they didn't throw it very well. <laughs> they throw it down the middle and lob it up there. Just and I was six two, so I'd go get it. They were they were hoping you weren't going to uh, notice that they threw it near you. Right. They started not throwing down the middle. <laughs> like, yeah. How many times uh, did you get burned at William Mary playing free safety? Oh, a couple times. It's horrible feeling. It's a it? horrible feeling, but mostly in like a a man to man where there's a lot of motion going on, and you're supposed to have one man, and then he crosses over. And it's it's hard. It's a hard job playing DB in the pros and college because they're always sending motion in, and you know you get, crossing. You get hung up in the wash. Crossing. Right? You you hear it all the time, like busted coverage. That was common back busted coverages are pretty common because you lose track of your assignment and you get mixed up but so laycock was your first year was his first year as a coach uh what i've always heard about college especially division one college coaches is they're more ceos now and that may be more of an 80s 90s 2000s like the the real coach was the positional coach the o-line coach or maybe the offensive coordinator kind of thing was laycock a hands-on kind of guy or was he kind of standing back Orchestrating. He was a brilliant offensive mind. So he would make, you know, some comments to the defense now and again. But he, he really did turn the, you know, the, the reins over to the defensive coordinator. And so, you know, we would, uh, you know, he, back, back when, you know, in the early 80s, William and Mary was an enigma because we – we played the Virginia Techs every year. We played, you know, Carolina and uh, you know Rutgers one year, Marshall University, and but then we would also play Ivy League schools and VMI and Richmond, and so you know we had a wide range of. We weren't in a conference back then, which mm. I think really helps players uh, with their identity and who they are. And, in the within the league, but we didn't have a conference back then. It was called the ECAC South, and it was, you know, it was basically twenty independent schools. Yeah. But now it's the CAA, you know, ACC, CAA, you know, different 
with our level of of play now, the FCS is now, you know, the division that we play in. Didn't exist until my senior year. Oh, really? Yeah. And they called it Division One Double A back then. Sure. They just created it, my senior, like nineteen eighty three. Yeah, JMU, U of R, and William Mary mm-hmm. were the one double A schools. Yep. Yeah. Um, Laycock, uh, what was his personality like? Hmm. He, he was there forever, Jim, right? I mean, he was there for thirty nine years. That's forever. Yeah. And so I date how old I am by how many years <laughs> he's been. At the, so. Yeah, he uh, he just retired in like 2017 or 18, I think. Uh, Mike London took over. Yeah. Um, but Jimmy was Jimmy was great. He uh, like I say, he didn't have. You know, he he propped his players up, and he didn't have a lot to say about the defense defensive side of the ball. But he was brilliant on the offensive side, and he he was a good he he and my. Buddy David Murphy. David Murphy played quarterback at, at William and Mary. Also, his senior year, he did amazing things and went and broke William and Mary records mm. in the eight games that he played <laughs> on his senior year. So he and he and Murph were good were good buddies. And uh, but but Laycock was a um, was a solid uh, coach and just he had a he had a very creative mind offensively. Did he get along with the players, generally speaking? He did. Yeah. yeah. So that rare creative. And they became friends of his later. And it's, it's unusual yeah. to be that creative and to connect that well with uh, 18 to 22-year-old kids. It is. It is. And he was one of the youngest coaches in the NCAA at the time. He was 32 when he was took say, the job. He, well, he had to be to coach yeah. as long as he did. There. 32. Can you imagine being 32 and head – Ball no, coach like college division one no way and you're in charge of like you said 90 18 to 22 year olds and trying to herd cats it's just yeah and some are less mature than others yeah yeah, yeah. What, what was about William Mary that attracted you to go there um, like I said the, the quality of education I'd heard about William and Mary forever my father actually went to U of R uh, he was in med school at uh, at MCV and went to went to uh, undergrad at U of R and I followed a guy named Barty Smith. You never remember Barty oh, yeah. Smith from sure. U of R? Oh yeah. He was an All American at U of R and my dad would always take us to the William Mary University of Richmond game and we would kind of be on the University of Richmond side and Barty Smith was this amazing running back back then um, and. I just think I was just thinking, you know, when I was 10, 12 years old, like, man, I want to, I want to play college football, and just seeing, you know, you, you see your heroes when you're oh, a yeah. kid, and you just go, I want to be that guy, you know, and um, I just remember, you know, when I told my father I was going to William and Mary, <laughs> he kind of went. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Didn't didn't turn down U of R and going to William and Mary, the rival. So yeah, I was gonna say it's a rivalry. But you know what? He he and my mom both changed their changed their outfits to green and gold and never turned back. Because you were their son, blue, yeah. Green, to, to the blue and red. So yeah, and they went to games forever after that to William and Mary games. 
Are they hanging out with uh, Cam Newton these days? <laughs> My mom is still alive. She's 93 years old, and I took her to a game uh, a couple weeks ago, one of the last games against Villanova. And she said, I haven't I haven't been to a game in like 10 years. And she, she really hadn't been to a game in maybe five, but she uh, – she remembered so many things about my friends, the, the boys. She called them. The boys would come over and, you know, and eat fried chicken at our tailgate and party after. And we take my mom and dad would always take my friends out to dinner after a football game. So, you know, we got we were pretty tight with a lot of my buddies and their families. Great memories for your mom and you. Great memories for my parents. Yeah. That's really. I mentioned Cam Newton because his brother, I think, plays with William Mary. That's now. right. Yeah. yeah. Is his he brother? Of, is his brother? He's a good player. Yeah. Cool. I, I mean, I'm not trying to be offensive with this question, but why would he go to William Mary if he could have gone to? Say, well, I think you know, London's a good recruiter, and uh, I think there are a lot of guys that find themselves in a position to go. And you know this. You can either go to a smaller school mm-hmm. where you have a chance to play immediately and contribute, or you can go to a bigger school and maybe not see the field for four years. So there's a big, you know, that was a choice that I made too. Like I yeah. got recruited by some bigger schools, but would I have played? I don't know, but it didn't come to that because I started for three years at William & Mary. Because you wanted to be on the field. I wanted to be on the field. I mean, how, you don't decide to put that much time and effort into a sport like that and not you know and lo and behold you you're not seeing playing time it's kind of a crushing blow yeah the the physical toll on your body from conditioning and from physical contact brutal physical contact in practice and then you don't get to play in the game yeah, yeah. that's rough yeah that's really rough the reward was saturdays yeah all that work was for playing mm-hmm. on Saturday. Mm-hmm. And you know this. It's like going, you know, every team is, you, are your, you know, soldiers beside you. and you Camaraderie is powerful. Yeah. Know. Hey, so uh, do you recall the, the best hit you ever had? And we have to remind people that are listening that the rules of football were very different <laughs> back then. Yeah. What, what was your best hit at William Mary? Do you remember? <laughs> oh, yeah. A bunch of them, but vividly. We played. We also played East Carolina, and so um, I was a guy that played. I moved from free safety to outside backer my sophomore year. So by you know by middle way through that first season that I started, I was and as outside backer, and I would blitz a lot. And so uh, we ran you know twists and what we called C stunts coming under the tackle and. And I just I remember maybe a half a dozen or a dozen plays coming on that C stunt and meeting the running back in the hole as he was receiving the ball. So tackles for losses were big. Sacks and tackles for losses were were big in in, in my stat category. And uh, you know once I once I moved to backer, it was a more it was a natural position for me because I was really super aggressive. And helmet to helmet was the reward because <laughs> you, you, you know, hearing that sound bite was really kind of cool. You'd hear that helmet on helmet, poof, 
the the timing of hitting a running back as he's trying to concentrate on receiving the ball like he's yeah. defenseless at that yeah. point yeah and what does he do the first thing he does he mm. ducks his head to yeah. protect himself right to protect the ball and so what do i do put my head right on that helmet as hard as i can and, <laughs> and try, today, and today that would be a problem backwards. yeah that would be a problem today yeah, it would be targeting for yeah. sure yeah oh i wouldn't i wouldn't last half a game in any game that i play <laughs> if there was targeting back then but you would have adjusted your game. You would right, adjust right? your yeah. game. But then it would wouldn't be as fun. soft. <laughs> it wouldn't be as fun. I, I didn't want to be known as soft. So, I, you know. Do you regret football changing uh, the rules? Like the way they no, play today? No, I don't. I don't. Because um, I think it was, it was it's been the right thing to do. I mean, there, there are ways to play football without helmet to helmet. Without wrecking the other guy. I, I, do, I do think that there should be. A little more, you know, leniency given to to defensive players that go in trying to hit low, you know, in the midsection, and offensive players lowering their heads. Yeah, it happens all the time to to protect themselves. And there's nothing to, the defensive player can do about it. Nothing. It's a bang bang play. It it's happening a thousand miles an hour, and in slow motion on the replay, yeah, you can see it's helmet to helmet. But at the time, you know, you, there's no way that you can stop yourself. From it's physically impossible. Almost. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to, to make that sort of adjustment within a millisecond, you, you can't be done. Right. And so, you know, as defensive players, you're trained to hit people. and That's your job. That's your job. And knock them backwards. And so it's it's hard for me to see that, that change in the rules where you're not allowed to, you know, hit like that anymore. But I do agree with the philosophy of, you know, not defensive defensive players, and you know players that are vulnerable. I don't. I do agree that you shouldn't be, you know, hitting the crown area with in those with those players. Yeah, because uh, brain injuries are a thing from football. They are, and I, and I imagine you had uh, a concussion or two playing. And um, I'm pretty sure I was concussed the whole four years. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, because if you got a concussion, like if you had changed your demeanor, whether you were wobbly on your feet or yeah. you just maybe weren't making normal sense, uh, right? I, I I imagine they told you to just rub some dirt on it and get back in there, kind of thing. Right. As long as you were on the right side of the sideline, <laughs> same colored jersey, <laughs> you didn't go to their huddle. You were fine. Get back in there. Uh, and, uh, but it also explains a lot about my GPA. That why my GPA was that's, that's what I tell people. Yeah. <laughs> uh. But I got out of there. I got a degree, and it was a good choice for me. What I tell my kids is, you can either have a great GPA, and that may lead to wonderful things, or you can they, they're going to give you a piece of paper if you have better than a two <laughs> I'm not telling them to strive for a two right. but if you get the two or higher, you're, you're yeah. going to get a piece of paper. And in, unless you're going to grad school, they don't ask you about your GPA and your job interview. For most jobs. For most jobs. Yeah. But uh, if you're going to grad school, yeah, it's kind of important. But You're going to definitely improve your chances of getting into the grad school you want to get into, That's for right. sure. All right, so let's change pace a little bit. When did you know you could paint? When did you know you, you were an artist? Um, probably six years old. Really? Mm-hmm. Just because, you know, by the time... You're six. You're you're what I call rendering things that you see uh, 
and that you can copy out of a book or you wanted to render because you felt like you could do it i don't know i don't know if there was any driving force other than i started to do it and i was pretty good and it was better than the other kids in the class at and drawing and adults noticed you know and and adults noticed that you had skill you know maybe yeah maybe not too long after i entered school was where you know other kids were asking me to draw things for them (laughs) can can you draw this you know this car can you draw this you know this athlete throwing a football or can you and you know by the time i was i don't know probably fifth grade where I first started taking some art classes. Um, that's when I sort of knew I had something that other kids didn't. And did and other kids doing. think you were cool for, for having that ability or? Yeah, they did. Cause they want, it sounds like a lot of them wanted you to draw. For yeah. Them. Yeah. No, they, they definitely uh, kind of admired it and knew I was always in the, the running for the, poster competition or the art competition or whatever there was uh artistically they knew i was you know good at it and and i came you know in gloucester high gloucester middle schools i mean your classes aren't that big so i started taking art classes in fifth grade and uh and just kind of you know dabbled with it in fifth sixth and then seventh and eighth, I picked it up because I started a painting class. Mm. And uh, yeah, I would be in the painting class with, you know, mostly, you know, eight or nine girls. It's not a bad one place other, to be. One other guy, and I was like, hmm. So uh, this is my art class. And you were the strapping young lad that also played football. I did play a lot of sports, and so that's and people started thinking that was. That was interesting that I, you know, played sports and also attended Mrs. Rhodes' art class <laughs> and created these paintings. And some of the first paintings I did were of nature scenes. Mm. That's how, I mean, I grew up hunting and fishing and, uh, you know, observing nature out my back door every day. And so naturally when I started drawing and my, my mom talks about how I used to, she was the organist at our church. My dad was in the choir, so I'd sat with my grandparents in the congregation when I was eight, nine years old, and I would draw on the back of church bulletins, and people would save them, mm. so and take them home and frame them. Oh wow! <laughs> so I, I would and during one sermon, which I didn't really listen to, I would draw on a heron. <laughs> how old are you? A, how old are you roughly now? No, no, no. How old are you? For this, for this story, seven, eight years old. Okay, when I started wow. drawing them. P- people were framing your drawings when you were seven. Mm-hmm. Wow. And my grandmother, you know, had a stack of them because I would just, you know, give. I didn't think anything of it back then. I, they're not. I mean, I had no idea where I was going with it. But she, she was smart enough to save them all. <laughs> and fortunately, the back of our church bulletins didn't have any announcements on them, so they were. Just blank white paper. It's a nice canvas. It's a nice little canvas. Get get a few drawings done every every church sermon. And were you drawing nature, or were you drawing what you were seeing during the? Uh, no, I was drawing show. nature scenes, and from memory. So I didn't have anything to look at. So I'd, I'd draw, you know, a pair of ducks coming in, or a heron taking off, or you know, an osprey sitting on a 
an old tree or you know fish jumping so it was whatever i i remembered in my head i started sketching and one of the, and the first painting i ever did was an oil painting of a goose taking off mm. so um and then it just it snowballed from the time from eighth grade seventh and eighth grade on and i didn't really i only took a few art classes in high school because i really uh, you know you're, you're getting that liberal arts education with all the subjects and you know i'm in chemistry class and i'm in you know uh statistics and geometry and doing algebra and uh, and you know so you're you're taking all those subjects but oddly i didn't get to participate in art very much so i, I had to cover my bases i I uh, only took like one, one or two semesters during my high school years, but I did take some private lessons <coughs> from an artist in Gloucester. That uh, it was an interesting story my mom always tells about how she was, she and my grandfather were talented, and they took art classes from this guy named James Ware, and who was a talented watercolor artist, and he gave lessons at a local little store. Right, and you know, eight to ten adults would go in there and paint, and you know how the art classes go. And she, um, you know, one day asked Mr. Ware if she could bring me, and and he said, "Well, how old is he?" And she goes, "He's 12. <laughs> and he goes, "Well, I don't really give lessons to children." And she goes, "But look, he he drew this and this and this," and she showed showed him three things I did. And he said, hmm, maybe, maybe get him to come in next time. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> so at 12, I was taking classes with my mother and my grandfather from a guy named James Ware for a few years. And he, it sounds like he taught you. And he's a nat- he was a nature guy, and he, he uh, had a lot of interesting uh, teaching techniques. So. so when he's teaching you, what, what are you learning? I have no idea. I have zero ability to Technique, mostly. Technique, not, not just you know the the talent the innate talent to render is something that a lot of artists are born with so at age you know eight i could take a photograph of a duck and i could draw it in pencil and make it look like a duck none of my friends could do that their their ducks ended up looking like seagulls and you know or like daffy <laughs> turkeys or, or something yeah, yeah. but so they thought it was cool that I could do that. And so the ability to render comes to you naturally, but the ability to paint and learn the techniques of it are taught. So that's where I, I jumped in my, uh, my you know, learning about painting from, from instructors that helped me learn the technique of how to paint. And so a lot of it was trial and error. You know, some of it was you know taught so that you know here's here's how you do a watercolor painting here's how you start here's your sketch here's your you know what you layer on the colors but i quickly realized i was not a watercolor painter and i haven't done very few watercolors in my life i was an oil painter and the way that my brain worked thought in oils Mm. and it has ever since and so 98 percent of my work is in oil 
and it just allows a, a freedom but a method to the freedom and a building of the of the colors and the paint from back to front and so that's how i've um you know evolved over the years is doing you know different techniques with oils that um you know i've won a lot of competitions and have a lot of you know awards and accolades and going back to my younger years but they were mostly for my oil paintings in 2023 how many uh paintings do you think you'll do hmm i i've been averaging since i turned 50 i you know I've, I've had a different career up until i was 50 and then um i was a commercial photographer a video producer uh i did work for agencies and all over the country and magazines and so i i did a lot of commercial photography and the last 25 30 years but you know and and that didn't allow me to do as much painting as i i liked to do so i concentrated on you know commissions and a few competitions and things but when i turned 50 years old i just had this jump in productivity and i'd heard that about artists for years Mm. that they you know right along around the age of 50 they're they just become better artists and they become more prolific and they i think it's i think it's mortality (laughs) i think we think about Uh, what kind of legacy you want to leave you know because artists uh, they have there's an end game and and there's no more original guy crittenden's produced when i'm gone so you know there's a legacy i want to leave to my children grandchildren and their children so um you know i just i i probably in the last 10 years i'm 60 now so in the last 10 years i've produced maybe 50 to 60 paintings a year it's a lot it's a lot and some of them are small and some of them are really large and uh there's sometimes they're inspired by you know my own experiences either trips or like uh some of my fishing and hunting trips my photography excursions things i i can take you know note of and go back to the studio and and produce a, a painting of um i'll i'll do a lot of that because most of my paintings are from my experience painting from memory or painting from photo- photography a lot, or of, both? a lot of both photography and and memory and just years and years of knowing what a black duck looks like <laughs> coming into decoys and uh you know what a what a heron looks like jumping from a log you know to take off those things you know i work photographs for reference but i compose the scene of okay i just saw that in on my hunting trip or i just saw the scene on my fishing trip and i want to paint it so and you'll you'll a lot of people say that they can tell right away that i'm not just an artist who chose to paint i'm a sportsman who chose to paint from his experiences not an artist who just decided to paint a fisherman because he saw it because uh but more because that's what i do and that's so i'm I'm painting 
what I love. I love, you know, what I paint, and I paint mostly from my experiences. And, and you're, you're drawn to sport, the sporting life, uh, and you have the ability to paint. You enjoy painting, too, obviously. Yeah. Because yeah. you're – I mean, I get the point of turning 50 and you're sort of willing yourself to be more pr- prolific, whether it's consciously or subconsciously. Uh, but fi- let's just say you, the last year you did 50. How many of those are commissioned versus how many of those are just what you want to want to do yourself? Um, I would say 20% are commissions. Okay. The other 80 are, are either competitions um, or they're ideas that I just want to put on canvas. And uh, because I, I do end up selling a lot of reproductions. So, I've, for instance, we were talking earlier about the Cobia. Yeah. I haven't, I had, up until last year, I hadn't done any Cobia paintings. They're really hard to get pictures of <laughs> because, you know, Usually when you're fishing for cobia, it's in kind of murky salt water, green, gray water. And uh, so it's hard to get a clean video. And I do underwater video of mm. of my fishing trips. So whenever there's a fish coming to the boat, I'm sticking a GoPro in the water. And I'm getting that reference so that I can go home and freeze frame one of those one of those frames and, and paint from it. So I did that with the cobia. And everybody went nuts over it. <laughs> they thought, oh, man, the Cobia underwater, but in more clear water, because that's the artistic liberty I can take, is making the water man. more clear than the summertime water in the Chesapeake Bay. And so I made this Cobia real clear and what it looks like almost Florida water, and uh, everybody went crazy over it. So now I'm starting to paint some more Cobia. I've been asked to do a commission of Cobia. I've got a big commission of some rockfish going. I've got a couple of hunting scenes, a marsh, a couple of river houses. So, you know, a lot of, you know, I'd say 50% of my time right now is spent doing commissions. But, you know, I'll find a break in there where I'll, I'll pass up a few commissions to do my own stuff. Because you got to keep it. You got to keep it interesting for you. You can't just always paint for somebody else it, it starts to feel like work if you're yeah, always doing it for right. somebody else exactly and that's stuff i've always wanted to keep it about my experience and you know kind of my my hunting and fishing uh experiences and excursions so that for instance i i just you know in the last six or eight years i've been going to costa rica to to do some offshore fishing and got an unbelievable, beautiful reference of of tuna and mahi and and sailfish and marlin, all in the beautiful Pacific water. Just gorgeous water. Ten miles off the coast, oh. in in rolling beautiful. See, it feels like you know the Chesapeake Bay in the middle of June. So, you know, getting that reference, I've started to do a lot of blue water. I call it blue water fishing scenes. A lot of underwater marlin and sailfish and mahi and so i've got that whole genre going and uh it was all predicated on my experience and in my video that i underwater videos i even jumped in the water with a with a 185 pound sailfish and held it by its bill and its sail while they're hard to land they're yeah super hard to well land. he had to be gassed you know and and I was gassed too. I got in with. I didn't have. I wasn't tethered to anything. 
I was just floating with him, swimming along with him. And the, the, the captain and the first mate were in the water with GoPros on their head, shoot, you know, photographing, videoing me holding this thing. And it's on my website. It's kind of cool. Sailfish are incredibly cool fish to catch. And beautiful, too. They're just, they're just so kind of majestic. Yeah. Uh, so I, I apologize for the naive question. When, when, you commission, when somebody commissions a piece through you, are you agreeing on how much they're going to pay you before you start the work, or does it happen when the piece is finished? It has, it has to be agreed upon beforehand. Yeah, I it's imagine. agreed upon beforehand. And it, it, it's a combination of the size, work, and you know what's involved. And sometimes it's, all right, I have to go to, if it's a, if it's a commission of a specific place, right. I have to go do research, go you know, take pictures, go at a certain time of year, you know, in their marsh, you make sure their their blind is brushed and maybe put a boat out in front like they're picking up decoys or something. You know, anything like that takes extra work, extra time, extra money. But mostly my, uh, you know, commissions draw a certain price for a certain size. Yeah. Okay. Uh, your senior year at William Mary, was there any possibility of you going in the NFL? USFL. Really? I, got, I, thought, <laughs> I thought about it and uh, had had some had my coaches and some interesting um, inquiries about it, but I uh, ultimately decided that you know I had had enough and I was ready to go on with the you know start my career somewhere. So I, I moved from Williamsburg to Atlanta, Georgia, and started my art career. So that's when I started in the commercial art business. I went to the Art Institute of Atlanta, which was a commercial art school, and it trained for people to become art directors and designers and, you know, um, illustrators and whatnot. So I did a, almost two years there and then got a job in advertising right away as an art director, and, and yeah, it was great. How much of your career spent, have you? Sorry, go ahead. Finish your. I thought. spent I spent ten years in with three different ad agencies before starting my own firm in ninety four. That's exactly what I was going to ask. Yeah. So you worked for somebody else for ten years, and then you've worked for yourself. Which most people who've always worked for somebody else are like, "Oh, it must be amazing to do your own thing." But I imagine there are a lot of really hard parts of uh, working for yourself too. There are there, yeah. The number one tough thing to do is get business. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so, but it was an interesting evolution because I I was an art director for agencies and, and you know, and this was the late 90s or, I mean, not the late, 90s, late 80s, early 90s. And at the, at the time, personal computers were really taking over the design world. And so people, you know, that, that used to, you know, paste up on a on a big drawing board with a T square and mm-hmm. get what they call galleys of type and wax them on to these big, you know, big sheets of board that were marked off with exact and pre- precise measurements. That all went away when the personal computer started doing design work, and everybody started, all the art directors started designing on their computers. That happened right as I was getting to Richmond in the early 90s. And and I, 
I saw an opportunity to use the personal computer to manipulate photography and take take you know professional photography and add this beautiful blue glow to it that you couldn't do through the camera you had to do it you could do it digitally so that's how I started my business was doing work for ad agencies that needed an artist eye but computer tech technical skills and make you know put this Mercedes that was shot on a you know on a studio in a studio in New York and scan that and put it on a beach in Laguna California or somewhere and the technology was good enough that that looked real it, that that's where I've made my haze because I could take it and make it look more real than these you know these what they call operators at at these big um, what they called uh, I forgot what the name of these production houses they call mm, yeah, yeah. so you know ad agency would go to these production houses and they would have technical guys that would manipulate pixels and try but I was an artist that did that you were doing so just like you could effectively do the whole thing so just like you know to sort of make a a comparison was just like I had started in when I was six years old, you know, drawing better than anybody else. I was now 35 years old and I could manipulate photography better than anyone else in the city of Richmond at the time. And so I was hired by the Martin agency and all these big ad agent ad firms that gave me unbelievable projects to do and that's how I started my business and I you know I went from you know working for somebody else doing that to making a $50,000 investment in computer equipment and photography equipment and starting my own firm no regrets none it was an exciting time and it stayed exciting for a while I imagine long time yeah good 20 years until things until until the 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 barrier to entry to get into um commercial photography and so was really high back in the 90s but you could buy a camera in 2010 for 500 dollars with a good lens and you could call yourself a commercial photographer that so there were all these kids coming out of college quoting they were you know claiming they were professional photographers because they had a nice professional camera it was only cost them a thousand dollars of investment you know and now they're professional so when that happened it undercut a lot of professional photographers that made their living you know shooting shooting ads for big companies and uh what they used to you know charge five thousand dollars for for one shoot now college kids were coming in and shooting it for five hundred. Yeah, and that has to change things. Crushed the business. So when you think about a, a good photo, what are the elements of a good photo? Whether it was nineteen ninety five or or today. Yeah, uh, composition, um, color it depended on it depended on your um, you know your end goal, but you know I I always thought compositionally and and digitally so that uh, you know it didn't it didn't take one good photo sometimes it took 
10 good photos to make one good image. Mm. And that's why, you know, I was able to make a, a career out of a 25 year career out of manipulating images because I could take those 10 photos and I could put them together and make them look like one thing, one image. And that image would be, you know, you look in almost every magazine or on television, everything's manipulated digitally now. Everything. Everything. So that woman's actually not that attractive. She's not. Um, you should see her in the daytime. <laughs> yeah. So when you say composition, tell me more about composition. Well, you know, in in the ad world, it used to be that, um, you know, composition was big because there had to be copy space. Mm. You know, you, you had to allow for where the copy was going to go. So you had to compose a photo you know, either digitally or in the camera that allowed for their ad to be exactly like they wanted with the headline up the top and the, you know, and the, the copy down below and, or on the side. So that was a different kind of, you know, necessity back then. Um, but these days you can move everything around digitally. So it doesn't, it's not as important as it used to be composition, but, the composition of a beautiful photograph is still important. It's still very noticeable to to the trained eye, and a lot to the untrained eye too. Like when you see a beautiful photograph, and it's composed beautifully, edge to edge, and and uh, it just strikes you a certain way, then you know that that hasn't changed. It's still composition is still a, probably the most important thing in. And a good photograph. All right. So back to oil paintings. When you're same thing, by the way. Composition. Composition is huge with painting, and uh, any artist will tell you that. Now beyond that, it's you know it's it's technique and tone and and um, and color balance and you know training you know, the eye following the painting around and completing the painting visually. So there's a lot of there's a lot of that to to painting that may not come into photography as much, but composition still king. I imagine uh, composition in painting is more intricate, or is that not accurate? Um, I don't I don't think intricate is the word I would use. It's uh, importance. Yeah, I think. Um, yeah, the comp composition is still very important, but you can have a, a very abstract painting that is composed beautifully with color and tone. You know, you've seen abstract paintings and they either do something for you or they don't. You know, they either move you or it's like, ah, a kid could do that. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of people think that. But I'm one of them. But a beautiful composition in an abstract painting is just as important as it is in a really detailed, you know, duck painting or a fish painting or one of my landscape paintings. So, you know, I, I still, I admire that about abstract artists. Um, because, you know, they're in their, uh, composition and color and tone and value and all that is, 
is even more important than it is to me as a realist. I'm a real realistic painter. And uh, so, you know, to me, I'm, I'm trying to accurately portray what I see and what I've taken photographs of or the realism of that scene. For instance, I've done a lot of, you know, top water fishing scenes in Bahamas and South Carolina and Florida and stuff. That that scene needs to be accurate. You can't have, you know, a South Carolina marsh. You can't be brown in the middle of summer. You know, it it needs to be green, and that's you know, that's a it's an experience thing. It's a detail that matters. It's a detail of of your experience. Yeah, and people, and the people that are buying my art, for instance, are the sportsmen who know what that boat looks like and what a fly fisherman, you know, the the right fly casting motion looks like and Mm. what that you know the guy with the pole who's pulling you around the marsh looks like and what those redfish look like tailing in the the marsh and they're not going to buy something that is off like oh fish don't do that uh that that position of that fly fisherman is is not natural they detect it right away they go they know it right away and that's kind of where you know, I've made my mark, and a lot of us in in the sportsman sort of sporting life field of art have uh, you know have done it from experience because you, you can't you can't be off with that stuff and expect you'll, you'll go nowhere and expect a, a, an avid fisherman to buy that painting because they'll know that that's. Mm, so when you get a commission, I imagine the the beginning stages of hey, what exactly do you want? That co- that conversation can be good for you or, or not good for you. I imagine the act of painting. Uh, compare that uh, the joy you get from the actual journey of construct constructing the painting to actually seeing the finished product and how much pleasure the finished product gives you. Does that does that question make sense? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, I think for a lot of artists, we have an idea of how, how this painting should look in the end before we start. Yeah. And it doesn't always turn out like that. It, it may take, you know, it may take a sidebar over here and it may veer out of the lane for a while and come back in. But I think we all have a a vision of what that what that end product is going to be. And so after, after I have that vision and that sketch in my head of how it's going to turn out, I work toward it. You know, I'd start with a, if you could see some of my, some of my, I'm starting to put um, my paintings in time-lapse videos so that people can see my technique and how it progresses from a blank white canvas to this really detailed painting of wood ducks sitting on a log with the sunset behind. So that's one of my posterity things that I've talked about is I want my kids and grandkids and their kids to, to have these videos of how grandpa painted and what he did and, you know, to, to achieve his, his best work. That's a great gift to leave them. 
Yeah, I think so. You know, we heard something the other day about our, you know, some of our our biggest fear about death is not is being forgotten, <laughs> and you know, it's a way that I have of not being forgotten, leaving a legacy for for my children and grandchildren and friends and family to enjoy my works for years and you know it's it i talked to my wife about this it's it's part of my legacy that i can leave and people leave their legacies in different ways but mine is a is a visual arts legacy so you know i hope they can appreciate it many generations from now you know like we appreciate some of the painters and masters and seeing not comparing myself to masters but you you see paintings by your your relatives that are you know gone and you go oh i have a little glimpse inside their head yeah and that's who he was that's you know 99.99 percent of your legacy will be all the things we've talked about uh point uh, 0.1% will be this audio recording. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. It's it's in there. It's in the it's in the books now. It sounds like it's in the, no. It's in the, it's in the mix for sure. All right, I got a couple more questions. Okay. Imagine you're a, a talk show host. It can be daytime, just a TV talk show. Uh, you you get to host it one time. It's your show. You get to invite the guest. Your guest will be one male, one female. One musical act, and if you're into stand-up comedy, you can come up with a stand-up comedian. This question is meant to be a little more revealing about who you are and your personality and, and your interests beyond what we just talked about. Uh, perhaps um, they can be alive or dead. They mm-hmm. can be famous, not famous. They can be friends, family. They can. These folks can be whoever you'd like to have on your talk show. Okay. All right. That's interesting. Um, I think there. It's it's he's not a he's not a celebrity in the sense that you guys think of celebrities but he's a celebrity to me and his the guy's name is Robert Bateman and he, he I would I've often thought of just uh, he's still alive he's an artist he's the, one of the pre- preeminent wildlife artists not just of our time but it, probably in history and he's uh he was I thought it was interesting when I read his bio I went to his exhibit he, he was the only wildlife artist to ever exhibit at the Smithsonian Institute he's from Canada mm. and he's he's widely regarded as kind of one of the grandfathers of wildlife art and if you saw his work you'd know why he's got you know six or eight books out on full color books and I have them all but that's one guy I've thought I just I want to meet him before he passes away. So can I can I just call him? <laughs> this is this say, is this is not a bridge to yeah. you meeting him. I want to call him right now and say that's not how Bob. This, that's not how this podcast works at all. Uh, but but he's still around. Know, it sounds he's, like he's still around. He's still alive. He was um, yeah. His his we have the same birthday. Uh, we're just 30 years apart he's 90 i'm 60 
you know, when he was 60, I was 30 and just kind of starting my career and professionally doing wildlife art. And so he's, he's the one guy, I think he, he's a really interesting guy. He's got his own, you know, foundation and has, uh, has just been all over the world and record, you know, with, with paintings, uh, recording, you know, the world of conservation and, and nature and, all of these off species that you would never, you know, you would never think kind of a mainstream artist would paint, but he's also so prolific. His paintings are sometimes, you know, 10 by 15 feet (laughs) and how he paints in a studio and does a 15 by 20 foot painting and backs up from it. And if you look at it closely, you just go, well, that's, that's an abstract piece. You took a, and then you back up from it 25 feet and you go, oh my God, that's a, that's a buffalo in the dust. And you can barely see it. And how he does that is still amazing to a lot of us. Like, Sounds like pixels almost. It's, it's just a real talent. And it was before computers. And he, he did a lot of his work before computer-aided photography helped him you know, create his work. But you know, it's, it, he's just one of the truly most talented artists that I know that are still alive. You know, we have a uh, crack research staff on the podcast and uh, we'll, we'll get the crack research staff okay. uh, working on yeah. connecting you to him. Yeah. I would, yeah, I would love to visit with him just even for, you know, an hour, but I don't know if that's going to happen, but he's my idol. One of my idols. All right. So he's the first guy you can come out from behind yeah. the curtains. Yeah. How about your female? Um. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting because you don't want to say something stupid. <laughs> it can be a family member. You can you can take the safe route if you want. Yeah. Um. Or we can come back to it. we can talk about music, a musical act that you'd love to have on. Yeah, musical act. Interesting question too i you know i've i've been to a thousand concerts and um actually when i was in college i worked the rolling stones concert in hampton roads two nights in a row christmas of 1981 and my fraternity because we were all football players got hired to do security at William mary hall and it's a good place for a concert oh yeah we had great shows back then. Doesn't happen anymore because they don't sell that venue like they used to. But they should continue to do it to this day. It's a great it, venue. It's a great venue for music. Very acoustically interesting place. And plus, they can put that stage in the one end where they're mm-hmm. missing. But you know, the the one act that I never saw, and you're gonna go really because I tell people this: I never saw in live. Was uh, I've I've seen the Rolling Stones, the Police, the Marshall Tucker Band, you know, Almond Brothers, every every band you can imagine, but I never saw Led Zeppelin in live in concert. And they had a show in in London, like you know, I guess it was about ten years ago now, but they had been broken up for years, and they did one one show in London as a um um what a call it when reunion kind of a reunion show and 
I was this close to getting a ticket to London to go to that show, and a couple of my buddies did, and I regret it. I was going to say, if I, if I had knew, known about that, I don't think I knew about that opportunity, but uh, Led Zeppelin hadn't played in a decade, and they're going to get together one time? Yeah. yeah. You talk about prolific. Oh, my God. Unbelievably prolific, and some would argue that their drummer was the best drummer of all time. Jimmy Page is in the conversation as a top five guitarist. Yeah. Uh, and then and, and Plant, Plant was unbelievable. He, he was a legend. I mean, they were all legends. And just, I don't know, their their music sort of transcended, like, between somewhere between hard rock and rock and roll, you know, mainstream rock and roll. And it just... It walked that fine line back in the in the seventies and eighties where you just go, Wow, I wish I'd gone to more of their shows. It was it was it was unique, but it was also yeah. it had wonderful rhythm and, and beats and they would flow in unbelievable ways throughout just one song. Yeah. Yeah. And he had such a and Robert Plant had such a like just the consummate rock and roll voice, you know. And lifestyle. And lifestyle. <laughs> Those guys were legends. And, you know, the Stones, the Who, I've been to all of them. But Zeppelin was one I never caught. Yeah. I wish I had. So that was my band. Robert Bateman was my was my guy. What What's the other stand-up one? Stand-up comic if you are into stand-up comedy. If you're not. You oh, can, yeah. No, I think one of my all-time favorite was George Carlin. He, oh my god he got so surly as he yeah. got older yeah, yeah he did. <laughs> that's so surly he did and he he got a little more political and all that but yeah. i think you know he was he just had a unique way of of um broaching a subject you know on stage and i it just and then his his uh what was it 30 words you can't or say the, or whatever, whatever the number was, was yeah it was those were hilarious <laughs> and his synonyms for parts of the body and i don't know it's, and he, he would he, he would come just, he would come at things from an angle that nobody had ever thought about yeah yeah so that was my comedian you don't have and, to you can give another male if you want to but yeah. this, the standard structure is includes yeah, a female yeah. My son asked me this question. I said, Susan B. Anthony. It was just kind of a cop-out answer. Yeah. Even though I would love to talk to her. Yeah. Hmm. And I I admire a lot of women um, leaders and whatnot, but I think maybe it would maybe it would be a celebrity woman, and I would have to you know, I would have to say someone like uh, from SNL from you know the nineteen seventies or something. Some you want me to give you you want me to give you one? Yeah, Gilda Radner. Gilda I, Radner. I think she was hilarious. She was just unashamed to do anything. Oh, she would do anything. Any role, any yeah. She could hang with anybody. Yeah, I think. I think it would be interesting to interview those people from back then. Not just Gilda, but the whole cast from SNL back then that was classic, you know, from from Belushi to Chevy Chase to Dan Aykroyd. And Bill the Murray. The talent, the Bill Murray. I mean, oh, my God, the talent that 
decompose has never been no one's come close come close since then. no so all right tell me about your uh, family oh so immediate family yeah so i have three daughters uh, um melanie is melanie is my wife and uh i have three daughters Lindsay, alexis and little melanie which gets confusing sometimes because we have a big melanie and a little melanie and big mel is only five three 107 pounds so it's ironic that she's called big mel <laughs> but that's her name that's her nickname big mel and uh so our daughters are uh, they all grew up in richmond went to st Catharines school had uh, they had three good colleges uva wnl and swanee and uh they all grew up being being river rats kind of like me they uh, they grew up uh sailing and and fishing with dad and on hunting trips with me and uh, they learned, they all went to this North Carolina camp called Camp Marywood where they learned how to be young women and, uh, they were kayakers. They did whitewater kayaking and, uh, they're, you know, sort of instilled their adventurous spirit. And I always say, you know, we, we did all this and to instill a sense of adventure and, and damn if they don't go off and move halfway around the world. <laughs> and so they did. I mean, I've got one that lives in New York and one in Steamboat Spring, Colorado, and one in Sydney, Australia. So spread out all over the hemisphere. They're, they're trying to be worldly, it sounds like. And, uh, yeah, they're all, they're all uh, interestingly, they're all creative. They all have right brains, and I think they... They get that that side from me, and they get their, you know, their soft and caring and uh, analytical and uh, experiential side from their mother. With, you know, so um, yeah, they're an interesting combination. It's interesting how your children turn out to be combinations of the two of you but they're all different from each other they're all different from each other still yeah and uh and they yeah they're just they're they're wonderful i've got one married and with the little little boy who so i have a grandson my first grandchild congrats thanks he's uh, 16 months old now and uh He's a hoot. You can always you can already see the athleticism in him. He, we were just looking at some video of him shooting hoops at a year and four months, and he's got this little basket off, you know, about four feet from him, and he just toop, 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 just swish every time. It, it's like okay, he's going to be that, and then he's a soccer player because he's kicking balls across the room, and so, you know, I just said. To, every, to all of my children, look, I raised three daughters. I'm, I, have this, I have more testosterone than the average man, and I raised three daughters. So God owes it to me <laughs> to have five or six grandsons. Yeah, maybe eight. Maybe eight. Yeah. So that's what I've ordered. 
I don't know if my order is going to come through. Did you forget I'll to place order, your order for a hot slot? <laughs> I've placed it over and over, and so I hope it comes through. But I like little. I like my little girls too. But um, but I, I do need some boys around the house. I totally understand. Uh, how'd you meet your wife? We met through friends, uh, friends of friends, and um, I was in Atlanta, and she was. Uh, she was in New York at the time, so we we uh, we met in Atlanta. She came down to an event, and uh, and you know it was one of those things where we were all we're all together all weekend, and you know, I thought she was pretty cute, and <laughs> um, and you know one thing led to another, and we started dating from afar, which was hard not but easy yeah wasn't easy at all plus i was in the middle of atlanta georgia which was full of beautiful southern girls but for some reason my heart was stolen by this you know this girl from virginia and there was there was a reason for it because you know i i eventually wanted to come back to virginia uh you know she was she was a Richmond girl and related to Rob. And so um, when we started dating, I was like, you know, I'm kind of done with Atlanta after <laughs> after we started dating. And so we, we eventually uh, decided to, to get engaged and then moved to Richmond soon thereafter. So you guys got engaged in, when you were living in different places. We did. Wow. We did. We dated the whole, like, year and a half from afar and how that worked out i have no idea good for you it did it did i think i was you know as a young man you're not sure you're committed to anything before you're 30 years old you're lucky to survive the day most days right so when if i was if i was that interested in her there was a reason for it and there was a method to it and i was like okay i'm gonna you know i think i'm gonna marry this girl and lo and behold, it took a lot of a lot of effort and a lot of travel, and but it was it turned out to be a great thing. All right, last thing uh, from a posterity angle, anything you want to tell your future grandkids or your current sixteen-month-old grandson or future generations? Anything they should should know from from you? Yeah. So my my nickname for my grandfather nickname is Big Guy. So, and my and my wife's name, Melanie's name is Mimi, because that's was her grandmother's name. So Mimi and Big Guy, and you know, we always say, and this was true, Rob, when you know we were talking about our family get-togethers. So, and it's true about almost every family. If you build it, they will come, right? So, uh, we're talking about not just building the family bonds and building the family traditions, building the family places that you go and the experiences that you share together. You build all those things and your family can stay together and will stay together. And even though they're halfway around the world, we just traveled to Australia for two weeks to all be together. And and everybody had that commitment to, all right, we want to be together as a family so they all arrived in Sydney, Australia for two weeks. 
to spend a trip of a lifetime. And, you know, we were the promoters of that. Like, okay, we're, every year we're going to do a family adventure. Every year we're going to, you're going to switch off with your families, your in-laws or whatever, and do Christmas and Thanksgiving and rotate and stuff. But building the, building the family traditions are important. And that's what Melanie and I talk about all the time is if you do that, then your family will, that stays together, will grow together and, and their kids, their first cousins will be close. And that's important. And it's important to a lot of people, not just to us, but all the families out there that want to keep their family together. If you build it, they will come. Yeah, it's a good tradition to have, and it's a good way of uh, viewing the world. And, yeah, more people should think that way. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Well, Guy, thank you so much for doing this. I uh, learned a ton about you, and uh, I enjoyed the conversation, yeah. man. I, you you are a mini-talented kind of cat, and oh. I did not see that coming. Well, thank you. I hope it makes it to the 90% of the, <laughs> the more interesting ones. <laughs> it, it absolutely does. Yeah, okay. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, man. Appreciate it. this episode please subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts we'd also really appreciate if you'd rate and review us you can find us at scodopodcast.com